Welcome back to the program. Today, virtually everything in society has become atomized by the left-right, red-blue debate. Whether it's culture, entertainment, politics, sports, science, and health, all are shaped by how we see the liberal versus conservative divide. But rarely do we stop and try and understand the roots of all of this. Where did these terms come from? Who were their intellectual fathers? And how has their meaning morphed over decades and even centuries? My guest, conservative political analyst and journalist Yuval Levin, puts all of this in far greater perspective in his new book, The Great Debate. Yuval Levin is the founding editor of National Affairs. He's a fellow at the Ethics and Policy Center, a former chief of staff of the President's Council on Bioethics, a former congressional staffer and contributing editor to National Review and the Weekly Standard. It is my pleasure to welcome Yuval Levin here to talk about The Great Debate, Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine and the birth of right and left. Yuval, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. You begin by looking at the debate about the French Revolution that Paine and Burke are having. Talk a little bit about that as kind of the defining premise of, of where this story goes. Yeah, you know, we're, we're very accustomed to taking left and right for granted, as you say, in our politics. We just assume that that's how the politics of our kind of society works. And what the book tries to do is really ask where that comes from and why and what we might learn from the first real iteration of that debate. A lot of people will say that left and right come from the French Revolution, and, and the terms themselves certainly do. They literally come from the seating positions in the French Parliament in the wake of the Revolution, where the more radical members sat to the left of the speaker and the less radical ones on the right, and the press began to refer to them as the left and the right. But what the book argues is that that's really not where our left and right come from, but that our left and right come from an English-language debate in Britain and America about the French Revolution, uh, about what it meant, about what it meant for the sort of societies that uh, the Americans and the British had. And it really amounted to a debate that was about the nature of liberty and the nature of the free society. And the book tries to look at that debate, which really gripped that period that we think of as defined by the American Revolution and the French Revolution, um, tries to look at it through the eyes of two of its most prominent combatants. Edmund Burke, who was uh, an Irish-born English politician and writer, a uh, member of uh, the House of Commons for 30 years, and thought of as one of the fathers of conservatism because he uh, was a great believer in gradual, incremental change rather than radical uh, revolution. And Thomas Paine, who we know better in America because he was an important figure in our own revolution, and then became an important spokesman to the English-speaking world uh, for the French revolutionaries. He was in Paris for the revolution uh, and was really one of the first truly uh, true modern radicals, uh, a great believer in the power of democratic revolution to transform society. At core, their views were really about two very different views of the world and more specifically of human nature. Yeah, absolutely right. Their views... In a sense, the interesting thing about their debate, and also about our political debates, is that they happen, we might say, within the 40-yard lines. They're not debates about, they're not debates between communism and fascism. They're not debates between absolutely radical alternatives the way that we've sometimes seen in European history. They're debates within the liberal society, but they're, they're very fundamental and profound debates because they do begin from differences about human nature. Um, Burke begins with a rather low opinion of human nature, with a sense that the human being is a fallen creature, a limited creature, subject to vices and excesses that uh, can't be overcome but have to be counterbalanced. 
And so he uh, begins by looking at a world that's imperfect and that's a combination of good and bad and is struck first by the good, by the, by the things that are working, exactly because he, uh, he, he expects failure in the human experience and is impressed by success. Pain, because he starts with higher expectations, with an idea of the perfectibility of the human person and of the ways that the new knowledge that was emerging in the Enlightenment could transform the world for the better, looks at that same world, that same mix of good and bad, and is first and foremost struck by the bad and outraged by the bad, by the persistence of failure in society. He's a believer that we can do a lot better. And so rather than starting from gratitude and trying to build on the best of what we have, he starts from outrage at injustice, outrage that we would certainly recognize as righteous outrage, but that leads him to think that what we need to do is really start over, start over with the right kind of principles. And so from that, you get to a, a set of views that amount, on the one hand, in Burke's case, to gratitude for the good and a desire to gradually build on it, and on the other hand, with pain, as I say, outrage at the bad and a desire to fundamentally transform it, and you can see how one becomes conservative, trying to save what is best and make the most of it to address what is worse, and the other becomes progressive, a desire to really move to a different kind of politics, a different vision of, uh, of human society. One of the things that pain brings to it is this idea that somehow we can reason our way out intellectually of any problem and any issue that we face. That's right, it's, it, it, and it comes from exactly the same place, from a kind of uh, incredible enlightenment optimism about human possibilities. And the moving force behind that optimism, pain took to be the power of reason, the, the, ability, the, the ability emerging in enlightenment science and increasingly in social science uh, to reason our way to solutions to what had always seemed to be timeless problems. And so he's really a great believer in the rationalization of society, in finding the right principles, applying them in the right way, with the right techniques, and even in using scientific knowledge, technical knowledge, to address social problems. Burke has a much more limited view of, the, of, of those possibilities. He thinks that society... Uh, is not amenable to a kind of social physics. It just doesn't work that way. It's much too complicated. It's made up of very complex and imperfect human beings, and that means that social institutions are always going to be too unwieldy and complex to be, sub to, to be amenable to technical solutions. He believes instead in, in, in social knowledge rather than technical knowledge, knowledge that's possessed by our social institutions and even that's contained in the forms of those institutions in how we interact with one another, in the structure of the family, the structure of community, of religious institutions. And so he thinks that society can benefit from knowledge uh, that no one in particular possesses, but that's contained in how we do things. And that's why he's a traditionalist. Uh, Burke is not a reactionary. He's not a backwards-looking conservative. He doesn't think things used to be better than they are. He thinks the present is better than the past, but that the way that it became better is through gradual evolutionary improvement through social institutions. And so he wants to sustain those institutions so that they can make the future better, too. And it's a difference that you really do still find in a lot of our political debates between left and right, where, especially in economic debates, the left has a, a faith in centralized technical expertise, in using government to apply technical knowledge. And the right is more inclined to think about how to use those social institutions that exists between the individual and the state, in that space that we in America think of as civil society, to try to address our problems in a bottom-up kind of way. 
it's 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 how the healthcare debate works. It's how a lot of our welfare debates work, uh, and it's it's the logic of it is very powerfully evident in that very early left-right divide uh, in the late 18th century. Talk about the ways in which this debate played itself out in very different ways with regard to their views about the French Revolution versus the American Revolution. Yeah, um, for Paine, the two the two revolutions were very closely connected. Uh, he, he saw them both as very radical moments, moments of possibility of a break from the past that raised the possibility of creating a new society along new lines. Burke thought of the American and French revolutions in quite different terms. Um, he was basically a supporter of American independence. He believed the Americans had been mistreated by Parliament. He believed this and said this as a member of Parliament, which was, of course, very controversial. Um, and uh, His view was that the Americans were being denied their rights as Englishmen, and that what they were doing was trying to demand those rights back and trying to demand a way to continue living as they'd been living uh, as uh, as very free Englishmen in the colonies. What he saw in France was a much more radical revolution, a really a desire to break with the past and to try to recreate society along some kind of uh, a social scientific line, um, starting from really abstract philosophy trying to build a society out of that, which he thought could only result in disaster. And so he was an adamant opponent, the foremost opponent of the French Revolution in Britain, uh, and yet had been a friend of the American Revolution, because he really thought the two were very, very different. Now, I, I think in a sense they're both right. The American Revolution contained both a radical and a conservative thread. You can even find it in the in Declaration of Independence itself. Jefferson begins in the Declaration with a very radical statement of principles. Um, our, Amer our, our great American principles. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed with certain rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Government exists to advance those rights. But then he says, the reason we're moved to revolution uh, are, are these wrongs that have been done to us by the British government. And the, the declaration ends with a list of accusations against the King of Britain, the King of England, which are basically all accusing him of denying the Americans the system of government they'd had for, for a long time, for more, well over a century by then. And so it is both a conservative and a radical document. And in that moment of founding, American politics contained both of those, and they pointed in the same direction. Our politics very quickly broke into uh, a, a party of, uh, of, of conservation and a party of progress, a left and a right party, uh, very soon after the founding. And in fact, it broke into those parties in a debate over the French Revolution, where Jefferson and Hamilton, uh, the Federalists and the Democrats, found themselves in very different places. And uh, I think you see that prefigured in the Burke-Payne debate. And it's interesting to see how Burke's views, particularly in terms of the French Revolution, were the more, if not the more popular views, the, the more winning views, I suppose, at the time, but that, that yeah. those views, when you apply them to the American experience, they go into somewhat of a descendancy. Yeah, well, you know, Burke, was, Burke turned out to be right about where the French Revolution was going. So when he first came out as, a, as an adamant opponent of what was happening in France, he was very much in the minority in British politics and in his own party. Burke was a Whig, not a Tory. He was uh, not a member of what became the Conservative Party, even if he's thought of as the father of conservatism. And most people in Britain had great hopes for the French Revolution at first. They thought it might be a move toward a more English-type system of government, a kind of system of liberty. Um, 
Burke said, no, this is going to end in violence, it's going to end in disaster, it's going to end in military dictatorship. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And so, um, as that began to occur, Burke's uh, star began to rise, and uh, his views became the dominant views about the French Revolution. Um, in America, of course, that same debate was being had, and uh, it's a funny thing. America, American politics broke, as I say, into these two parties fairly quickly. The Constitution was drafted and adopted in what was really a very conservative moment in our politics, a Federalist moment, and it shows in the structure of the Constitution, which is a very, I think, conservative document, in many respects a Burkean document, that creates these ways of channeling power, dividing power. It doesn't have a lot of faith in the, the uh, potential of pure democracy. But very soon after it was adopted, we entered a period of several decades where the Jeffersonians were the party in power and where American political thought became much more, uh, you might say, Paynean or Jeffersonian, uh, much more radically democratic. And, and as you say, Burke's sorts of views, which were more closely associated with people like Hamilton and John Adams in America, uh, were, were, were not in the ascendance at the beginning of the 19th century. And, of course, the Federalist Party literally disappeared. Talk a little bit about the ways in which the, these Burkean ideas of what were referred to as ordered liberty were mm-hmm. applied to, to the American experience. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one of, the, one of the things Burke tried hardest to do was to keep terms like liberty and equality and social contract from being uh, hijacked, as, in his view, by by radicals, from being hijacked by people like Thane, by people who wanted a much more radical break in politics in both Britain and, and, and America. Um, and he made an argument for liberty that was an argument for liberty balanced by order. That is, people are only prepared for liberty, he said, when they're able to control their impulses and their excesses. And so liberty is only possible in a society um, that produces a kind of citizen who's fit for living in liberty, a citizen who uh, is disciplined, uh, has self-control, uh, has what we would think of as the kind of middling virtues, the bourgeois virtues, as they came to be known in the 19th century. And for him, liberty was impossible without that kind of order. And so liberty really only happened in that space between the individual and the state, the, the space where families function, where local civic institutions and religious institutions function, and where characters formed. For Payne, that space, uh, he described it as a wilderness of turnpike gates between the individual and his rights. He thought that all these institutions uh, were, basically way, were basically illegitimate power centers. No one elected them to anything, and yet here they were telling people what to do. And he believed in, in a society that looked a lot like just individuals and the government and individual liberty was the core, and for him, it was not liberty that was counterbalanced by these moralizing institutions. Um, It was liberty that was embodied by choice, by individual choice. And so part of their debate is really about the nature of liberty, the nature of what it means to be a free person in a free society. Burke makes an argument that is much more communitarian, that is much more about understanding human beings in the context of, of their social environment, and Paine is a really radical individualist. How did this play out in the debate between democracy and aristocracy? Mm. Well, of course, Burke is operating in a very aristocratic society in late 18th century Britain, a society that uh, the government certainly had a dominant democratic element, the House of Commons, which really governed 
the country, but it also had a uh, a very strong aristocracy that was largely an inherited aristocracy. Um, Burke's argument for sustaining that is in part that this is a system that has worked to enable uh, a great balance of liberty and order, and in part that pure democracy left to itself um, is a very disordered system and gets easily out of control. And he thought that Britain's aristocratic system was a way to balance off the power of democracy. Here in America, of course, arguments for aristocracy were never going to fly. And um, the same Burkean impulse, the desire to contain democratic power, was expressed instead in our constitutional system in what we think of as checks and balances, uh, divisions of, uh, of, of uh, divisions of power between the branches of government, between the levels of government. All of these are ways of making sure that democracy doesn't get out of control. And uh, Thomas Paine, he never says that he, was, uh, that he was an opponent of the American Constitution. He wasn't here when it was debated and enacted. Uh, he was in Paris. But he does say that he doesn't believe in those kinds of divisions of power. He doesn't believe in having a bicameral legislature where the two houses balance each other out. He doesn't believe in all these divisions of power and uh, balancing instruments. He thinks democracy should just govern. And so I think it's fair to say that Paine probably would have been an opponent of the Constitution on democratic grounds. Part of the where it plays out also is in their very differing views about education and what the role of education is supposed to be. Yeah, you know, all of these connect around the same set of questions. And so it's certainly true that um, at, at the end of the day, Burke views the purpose of education, uh, the civic purpose of education, as essentially instructing people in the virtues of citizenship. And uh, that for him meant a system of education that was very much geared toward uh, history, what we would think of as the humanities. For Paine, the purpose of education is to provide people with the knowledge it takes to function in the modern world. He has a much more, what we would think of as utilitarian view of education, a technical view of education. Uh, as a way to liberate the mind and enable the individual um, to know what, what a modern person needs to know. Both of these have always been in tension in our own education debates. And, you know, our public education system has always faced this challenge of, uh, on the one hand, providing everyone with, with the universal technical education that uh, we think it takes to function in a modern economy, and yet also with the humanistic education that it takes to be self-governing citizens. That tension is very evident in Burke and Payne, and you can really see how they prioritize things differently because of where they start in politics. Going back to the early part of this story, what's remarkable that you talk about is the way in which they carried on this debate in public, that they constantly published stories and articles debating each other in the public square. Yeah, the great thing about this is that it's really a debate, and so you can really see them answering one another. The two of them were contemporaries. Uh, Payne was a little younger. He was seven years younger, but they, their, their public careers are very much contemporary with one another. They knew each other. They met several times, uh, spent some time together. They exchanged a fair number of private letters, and most importantly, they exchanged public essays. Um, Tom Payne's uh, greatest book, I think it's fair to say, is a book called The Rights of Man, which was a kind of defense of the principles of the French Revolution, written in direct response to Burke's most important writing, The Reflections on the Revolution in France. And Burke then responded with a very important and powerful essay called An Appeal from the New, from the New to the Old Whigs, which answers the rights of man. And Paine then answered that with the second volume of The Rights of Man. So there's a real debate. And 
on the surface, it's a debate about events. It's a debate about what the revolution means. Uh, and a lot of what both of them wrote, because they were such public men and so involved in public life, was about events. But right below the surface of all of that are deep philosophical arguments about the meaning of these events in relation to the meaning of a free society. And uh, it's an extraordinary debate to follow, and it, it, it got an enormous amount of attention in their own time. It was understood as a debate. Uh, it, was, it was followed with intense interest in Britain and in America, exactly as a kind of uh, a great articulation of the public debates that were happening in both places, uh, but that were almost nowhere articulated quite as clearly and powerfully as they were by uh, Burke and Payne. And, of course, what's so fascinating is the way these same tensions, even if the debate has shifted, the tensions themselves are still operative in, in today's politics. I think that's true. In a lot of ways, now, there's not a, there's not a direct formula. There's not a, sing, a, a simple straight line from, uh, from them to us. But what they show us is they really, they really articulate the two kinds of dispositions that arise almost naturally in our kind of free society. Um, a disposition, again, to begin from gratitude for the good and build on it on the one hand, or from outrage at the bad and a desire to uproot it on the other hand. A disposition to have a lot of faith in technical knowledge versus one to uh, value what happens in civil society in less directed and organized ways. Um, a disposition to think about the present as a function of the past and as owing a debt to the future, as opposed to one that says that uh, the liberty of the individual is key, and no one should be bound uh, by the, the decisions and, and preferences of others. That's really our politics. A lot of our political debates are about exactly those kinds of divisions and distinctions. And Burke and Payne really help you see where those come from and what they mean. Did they see the debate as filtering down beyond politics, but into almost every other aspect of society at the time? In a lot of ways, they did. They both were very concerned not only with politics, but with culture and with religion and uh, with morality. And so they certainly saw these as really fundamental questions they were debating. And so it, it's possible to peel back the layers of their argument and see how it is that they come to disagree uh, about very fundamental questions, uh, social questions, economic questions, political questions. It's really all there. The, the full lives of their societies were what they took to be their subjects. In fact, if you look at some of the things that Payne advocated, they're very modern in terms of the political debate, whether they're things like public pensions and public yeah. education and public benefits, etc. That's quite right. One of, the, one, of the, one of the most interesting things about following Payne's thought is that he begins from a kind of radical individualism and shows you how that works its way toward a welfare state, towards a place for government that's very active in providing for the basic minimal needs, material needs of its people. Um, and it, <clears throat> it's a way in which we can make sense of today's modern left, which is at the same time quite radically individualistic, especially on moral and social questions, and yet believes in a very prominent and central role for government in meeting our material and economic needs. Payne shows you the logic of that, how... The first part, the radical individualism, is actually what leads you to the second part, towards a, 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 a very prominent role for the state. And Brooke shows you how a belief in society as a kind of living organism um, and a belief in the importance of civil society leads you to a, a more minimalist view of what government's role is in, uh, in providing for people's basic economic needs. But it's interesting that Payne's views also took him to a place of small government. 
Well, certainly at first and originally, Payne um, Payne believed in limits on government, and he always believed in limits on government. But in in thinking about what what his kinds of views about human nature and human society meant in a in in the period of the Industrial Revolution, which was beginning in his time, he began to conclude that, in fact, there needed to be a larger role for government in providing for people's needs. And so um, his almost libertarian views about social questions are precisely what led him to more uh, government-oriented views on economic questions. And again, that's a combination that we still see in the left, where um, there's there's a kind of social libertarianism combined with uh, w- with a great role for government on economic questions, and the right tends to work the other way. Yuval Levin, the book is The Great Debate, Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine, and the Birth of Right and Left. Yuval, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.